But I don't know about you, but I grew up in, uh, not in the gray days. That's what my kids call that show, The Gray Days. When it was black and white, they call it The Gray Days. I didn't quite grow up in that time. Um, but I loved watching Andy Griffith when I was a kid, and partly because I, I somewhat felt like this connection to him, because Andy Griffith grew up in the city of Mayberry, which is actually called Mount Airy. Um, and if you watch that show repeatedly, occasionally they'll talk about this place called Mount Pilot. All right? And Mount Pilot is actually Pilot Mountain. And I can see Pilot Mountain from my house that I grew up at. All right? So, like, I felt like I lived next to Andy Griffith, even though, like, I didn't, and he, he wouldn't know me by any means. But, like, I always kind of felt this connection to him. And so, um, in, this, in this particular episode, uh, Barney is, uh, he gives a ticket to this limousine driver who's blocking a fire hydrant with a little bit of prodding from some of the other guys that are standing there. And you guys have seen the show, you know, like, Barney's always, like, trying to be number one cop and all that. And so... He's got some prodding from these guys that are showing him that, hey, you need to give this guy a ticket. And so he does. And it turns out that limousine belongs to the governor of the state of North Carolina. But for Barney, that doesn't make a difference because if you're parked in a handy or in a, a no parking spot, you deserve a ticket. So Barney gives him a ticket and the, he's blocking the fire hydrant. The driver's upset and uh, Barney just showed him how big and bad he is. He's going to give him a ticket regardless. And he doesn't care who the car belongs to. And so later in the show, the governor calls uh, the mayor of Mayberry and the mayor of Mayberry just starts to apologize. He's like, I'm sorry this happened. And the governor's like, no, I, I want to come and I want to commend this Barney Fife for doing his job. Like, if my guy was parked in a place he shouldn't have been, he should have got a ticket. And so I want to come and, and, and congratulate your deputy for doing his job without favoritism, without partiality, without any of that stuff. And so we're going to set a date, and, and we're going to make the arrangements, and the governor's going to come, and he's going to meet Barney personally. And as the episode goes... Um, Barney's kind of nervous about it. The mayor of Mayberry, he's kind of nervous about it, this whole big arrangement that everything's set. And so as they're in the jail, they, uh, Otis is there in the jail. And you guys know Otis, he's the town drunk. He spikes the water. And so Barney and the, the mayor both get really suckered up before the, the governor ever gets there. Barney is fortunate enough that he sobers up before the governor gets there, but the mayor, he sleeps through the whole thing. He misses this whole thing because he's, he's passed out in the, the office there. And so as I watch that show, there, there's this, this huge excitement and, and expectation about the governor coming, and yet the people who should have been the, the most there, the people that should have been the present the most, the mayor was all excited about, Barney, like the people who should have been the most excited about were the ones that almost missed it or completely missed the thing. And so as we look in uh, Luke chapter 19 this morning, we're going to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus, Palm Sunday, and we're going to find out the same thing, that Mayberry is a little smaller than the city of Jerusalem. Actually, it's a whole lot smaller. But 2,000 years ago, this city of Jerusalem, they were expecting this visitor to come. And the ones who should have been at the front of the line waiting and anticipating it the most, they missed it. And so as we work through this text this morning in Luke chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 29. We're going to read through verse 42. I am praying for all of us that are sitting here this morning. I'm praying for all of you guys that are joined online because the invitation is going to be there. And I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we are not dumber than rocks. And you'll see what I mean by that in just a minute. And I'm hoping and praying, honestly, that us who are sitting here and us who have been raised in church somehow, some way, we should be in the front line. I'm praying that we don't miss it when it comes to the most important thing that we have. And so go ahead and open your Bibles. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 29 and read down through 42. But, uh, verse 29 says, And as he approached Bethagia and Bethany to, at a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. 
untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. And so those who were sent left and found it just as, they, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? Verse 34, the Lord needs it, they said. And then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And he, as he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. And now they came near to the path down of the Mount of Olives, and a whole crowd of disciples began to praise God, glorifying with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Verse 38, the king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In verse 40, he said, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. In verse 41, as he approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. For our good and our great God. God, we thank you so much for a God who is beyond every word that we can imagine. God, who is beyond every thought that we can think and is beyond everything that we can even put our our words and our imagination to. God, we are so thankful that you are so beyond us. And God, we are so thankful and yet beyond our wildest dreams, you loved us enough to come and rescue us. And so God, this morning... I am praying that as we work through this text, God, as you speak to us through your word, God, that we will find reason over and over and over again to praise you. As we've already been doing this morning, God, I pray that it rings true in our heart. And I pray that as we finish this service this morning, God, I pray that, uh, God, our praise is just all that we have to give you, God. And yet it's all that you ask for us. And so, God, this morning I pray that you speak to our hearts. God, I pray that in this moment you are preparing our hearts God, for the words that you have, so God, that we can see what you have done in our lives and we are ready to praise you far greater than we've done and far greater than we've done at any point in our life. And so God, I pray that you speak. I pray that we listen and I pray that we're ready to hear your word this morning, Father. In your precious name we pray, amen. As a pastor, I have a privilege of, of being asked to do several weddings for lots of great couples. And uh, sometimes I get asked to do weddings for couples that I know very well. Like I know the husband, I know the wife, I've known them for years. Sometimes I get like I know one of them, but I don't know the other one. And I have been asked to do weddings for people that I don't even know. Like somebody knows that I'm a pastor, and so they call me and they're like, Hey, do you do weddings for these guys? And so I always, anytime I con- or get contacted by a couple, I'm always open and honest with them. There's a couple things that I'm, I'm very honest about my requirements to do your wedding is premarital counseling and cake at your reception. And I'm always open and honest about those two things. And, and as I'm talking about these things, and I'm clear because if, if that's going to be a problem, and I, and I make it clear up front, if either one of those two is going to be a problem, then you need to find somebody else. All right? If you're not going to have cake, I'm not going to be there. Just to let you know. All right? And so there's, there's a couple other things in that initial meeting of them that I just kind of want to clarify. And so I always ask them, like, where are we at in the planning process of this this wedding event, right? And really what I'm looking for, and I ask them kind of that, well, what I'm looking for is, do you have a date in mind, okay? Because at that moment, I really do want to know if you have a set date, because I want to make sure that I'm going to be in town, that my calendar's clear, that I'm not doing something else that day, or that I'm, I'm going to be available to you if that's the date you have. And so... Um, 
There, there are some folks that when I kind of ask that question, that they tell me, yes, we have a date, this is the date, all right? And that's it, all right? So there are some couples that when they come to me, like they just got engaged last weekend, they were so excited, they decided this is the date, this is the guy we want to marry, and bam, we're ready to go, okay? And so for some couples, when they come to me, that's all they have when we first meet is the date, all right? And as long as the date works, I'm good. But there's other couples that when I meet with them for the first time, man, they, like I asked them, like, so where are we at in this planning process? Do, do we have, like, some specifics laid out? And, like, these are the, there's couples that literally will, like, lay out a whole portfolio for me. They will give me the date, the time, the location, the colors, the bridesmaid dresses, the shoe sizes of the groomsmen, like, the ring bearer's name. Like, they will lay it all out there for me. And I'm just like, I just need to know when and where to show up. Like, that, okay, as long as we're doing it. But so there are some couples that, like, they are, they are so prepared and planned. And I'm not talking like they met with me, like, two weeks before their wedding. I'm talking, like, months. And, and some of them even a year before their wedding. In fact, I was meeting with a couple recently uh, that I'm going to be doing their wedding in a few months. And so I met with them uh, kind of the first time and, and just kind of talked with them and said, hey, you know, where are we at in this process? And, and so this was one of those couples, man. They, they just started laying stuff out. And, and almost a year before their, their expected date, like they just started laying stuff out. And, and then they opened up their phone and they said, let me show you pictures. And I was like, wow. Like they're gonna... And then they showed me this archway that they had already built for their wedding. And I said, you guys are like way far ahead of, of where most people are at. And, and you have done your homework. You are so prepared for this special day. And so the young lady looked at me and she said, I have had my wedding day planned since I was five years old. And I was like, wow, you are the girliest girl I've ever met in my life. Okay, I didn't say that out loud, but that was the thought. Okay, and so I, I thought, I was like, wow, you, you really have had this plan? She's like, yes, I have had this plan since I was five years old. I knew exactly what my wedding was going to look like, what I wanted it to be like since I was five years old. And I said, that's a really, that's a long time to have prepared all of this stuff. And she said, yeah, I just had to wait 18 more years for God to prepare me and prepare the right guy to fit into this picture of this wedding that I had. And I was like, well, I'm glad, you, you, I'm glad he fits in this picture, all right? I'm glad this worked out for you, because otherwise I don't know what your, your fantasy was going to be if that didn't work out. But there, when you, this, this is an example of a couple, man. They wanted everything. They don't want any surprises. They want it planned out perfect to the T, and they want everything to be just right. And so for her, this was the long 18 years between everything was planned and prepared for, and 18 years later, things are finally going to happen. And that sounds like a long time for most of us. Some of you guys aren't even even 18 years old, so you're not. You're like, I don't even know what it's like to wait 18 years for something. But for some of us, we've waited 18 years for things, and we think that's a really long time until you consider some of the things that Jesus makes us wait for. And so one of the things that, that Jesus made us wait for was this coming Messiah. He prepared things a long time before Jesus shows up, and he prepares the details of them long before Jesus comes on the scene, not before he existed, because he existed before all that, but, but before he shows up, before he starts doing th certain things, Jesus has been, or God has been preparing the people for this, this Messiah that was coming. So he's been using the prophets, not just for 18 years, but for well over 500 years to make them ready for this moment. And so in this moment that's going to be so special of Jesus entering Jerusalem, they want to make sure everything's right. 
And so the prophets really prepared the people in two ways. The first was the timing of the event, right? They wanted to make sure that the time was going to happen. I don't know if you've ever showed up uh, for a wedding late or showed up for an event late, but if you don't show up at the right time, something's not going to work right. And so the people were prepared because they knew the time was right. You see, this is not the first time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, right? He's probably entered Jerusalem at least 32 other times before this passage. Yet we don't have stories about them, okay? Now, we may have a few little ideas about them, but every year, every Jewish male was required to go to Jerusalem for Passover, right? It was a requirement of their faith. And so Jesus, being a good Jew, he would have done that. So at least 32 other times before this moment we're reading about, Jesus would have made this same trip to Jerusalem. He'd have walked through the same gates. He'd have done all the same stuff. But there's not all this buildup for that, those years, okay? And I'm not just saying just 32 times. He's been there other times, but at least 32 times he's made this same trek at least once a year to celebrate Passover. But this time is different. You see, this time there's a crowd that's gathered. This time there's, there's palm branches and there's all this expectation that's happening. And I'm convinced the reason for that is because Jesus knew this was going to be his last time. That he wasn't going to enter this city again to celebrate Passover like this. And not only did Jesus know, but I think the people had this expectation that this was the year that this was going to happen. They didn't know that he was going to die on a cross. They had other expectations. But they knew this was the year that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior was coming. And they knew that because 500 years before this time, God had prepared them through the book of Daniel. See, Daniel is a prophet in the Old Testament. And Daniel was telling them things that were happening and were going to happen. And so 500 years before Jesus... Jesus shows up, Daniel is telling them, hey, you're going to have a chance to go and rebuild the temple. There's going to be this decree to rebuild the temple. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, he says these amazing words. And he says, after 62 weeks, all right, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and we'll have nothing. So Daniel's talking about this rebuilding the temple and this decree to rebuild the temple. And he gives the kind of this mathematical formula. When he talks about weeks, he's not talking about a seven-day period. And so when you read the book of Daniel, understand that. He's talking about a seven-year period, all right? A week of years is what they will say, all right? So if you take the, the number of weeks that he says, 62 weeks, all right? And you multiply that times seven, all right? So 62 sets of seven gives you 434 years, all right? So you can go back and you can look at history. When the decree to rebuild the temple happened, folks started counting. And they said, we have 434 years until the Messiah is going to show up and we're going to be ready for the Messiah. So they started counting year after year after year. For 437 years, they were preparing for this moment. They were counting down the years until this moment showed up. And so this was the year that something big was going to happen. They had been counting it. They had been marking their counters. They had been waiting. So for 434 years, they were waiting for this moment. So Daniel had been telling them, get ready. Get your praise ready because this is the time that's going to be different. This is when the Messiah is going to show up. And so when Jesus comes into town this time, this is why it's different. Because the timing of the prophecies were right for this moment. You see, the second way the prophets were preparing the people was not only the right time, but also the right transportation that, that Jesus would come into town, not just at the right time, but on a certain way. You see, we go back to the text in verse 30, and he says, Go, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells two of them, he says, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you'll find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And then verse 31, he continues, he says, Anyone ask you about it, why you're untying it, just tell them the Lord needs it. 
Right? And so you're trying to figure out why he would need this colt, why he needs this donkey. And he goes on in verse 32. Uh, so the, the two that he sent, they, they went and they, they find it, I love it, just as he said it would be. Right? It's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about. I love that, that one little verse there. They found it just as he said. Right? So you've got to understand that they're not walking into like Cleveland with 800 people. They're walking into Jerusalem, which at this time's population, because of Passover, is probably well over a million, maybe two million people, maybe even more than that. Right? There are people, there are donkeys, I mean, there is a ton of stuff everywhere, and they find it just like Jesus said it was going to be. You're going to find a donkey on 3rd Street, 5th Avenue, on the corner there, and I don't, he doesn't give them all those details, or maybe he does, we don't know, but it's not recorded. And I, they, he, they find it exactly like it says. And, and so when you find this donkey, untie it, bring it back to me. And by the way, when the guy who owns the donkey asks you about it, just give him this one phrase, the Lord needs it, okay? So the two disciples, they go and they do this and they find the donkey. And so sure enough, the owner of the donkey comes and in verse 34, they give him this answer. said, the Lord needs it. And he just lets them go. It, it, Jesus knows exactly. And so then verse 35, they bring it back to Jesus and they throw their robes over the donkey and they help Jesus get on the donkey. And this amazing story about this donkey that's never been ridden before and all of a sudden Jesus sits on this donkey's back and just lets him ride it. And it just shows that, I mean, there's so much, man, we could go into a whole different idea about that. But just the, the master sitting on his creation at this moment and this donkey, being dumb as a donkey, realizes who Jesus is. And he doesn't buck, he doesn't fight, he doesn't, he doesn't do all the things that a donkey would do if you try to sit on one's back. He just goes, right? No questions about it, he just does it. But this transportation is important because 500 years before this event, there was another prophet called Zechariah living in Israel. And in Zechariah chapter 9, he gives this prophecy 500 years before Jesus and this event. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Get this, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. So now the timing is right according to Daniel. The transportation is right according to Zechariah. And so his response is shout. Rejoice. Shout because your king is coming. He is just and he has salvation. Now you've got to understand, this is different from what we would see today. Because for, for in Jerusalem, they were used to seeing kings. They were used to seeing parades. In fact, it was very common that when the Romans conquered an area, one of the first things they did was the commander who conquered that area, he held a parade. And he led the parade on some big, huge, war horse, stallion-looking beast that would ride in. And he would be in the front. And basically it was a, you're down there and I'm up here. Don't mess with me and don't question me. You are now under my authority and under my command. And this whole army behind me is going to make sure that you realize that. And so they were used to seeing that. They had seen it throughout their history. They had seen it throughout the Roman Empire because they're a providence of Rome at this time. They were used to seeing that. But you know what they never used to seeing? They never saw the commanding officer ride in on a donkey. Why? Because, let's be honest, donkeys aren't impressive. Donkeys don't command respect from anybody. All right? I, I've been to lots of... I want you to think about it. Think of all the parades. Think of all the rodeos you've been to. And, and the, the, like when you go to a rodeo and people are just marveling at the... the um, um, at the, the roping horses and the, the uh, saddle bronc horse, like just all the horses. Think of like people just like, wow, man, that's a huge horse. Like that's a massive animal. Like people are impressed with those. And then you got the donkey over here in the field. All if there's a donkey in a parade or if there's a donkey in a rodeo, it's most likely because the clown is riding it or leading it around. It's just there for fun. It's not there to impress you. It's not there for competition. Nobody's like, wow. 
that's the most amazing donkey I've ever seen in my life. Nobody gets excited, nobody gets impressed by seeing a donkey. And so why is Jesus coming into town wearing or riding on this donkey? It's because this is what the prophets have told him. Zechariah has said, hey, your king is coming, and he's coming riding on a donkey. Why? Because this king is different. His kingdom is going to be different than what you're used to. John MacArthur says it this way. He says he would come in humility to save and to die and to give his life a ransom for sinners. He didn't come into the city on this occasion in wealth but he came in poverty. He didn't come in grandeur, but he came in meekness. He didn't come to slay Israel's enemies. He came to save the sinners. You see, at this point, the timing is right, the transportation right. And for 500 years, the prophets have prepared the people for this exact moment. And they've been waiting for this moment. They've been so excited and preparing for this moment. And that's exactly what happens. This praise bursts out throughout the city because the timing is right and because the transportation is right. The disciples are putting their clothes on the donkey's back to make a saddle. And Jesus sits on it. And this is the donkey that's never been ridden before. There's this, this amount of praise. And as we read through the next couple of verses, there's the, we see all the reasons why people are lining the streets to give praise to Jesus. And first in verse 37 it says, Now he came near the path down, or excuse me, the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they have seen. I want you to picture this in your head, just this massive crowd gathering around Jesus. And, uh, and the streets probably were not wide back then. They probably were somewhat narrow. And, and so you've got Jesus coming. You've got his disciples kind of walking around. I kind of picture like Jesus being the president and, and like the disciples, like the, the secret service men who were kind of surrounding him, right? I don't know if that's what it was really like or not. That's not in the Bible. That's just how I picture it in my head. That's the Michael Rakes version, right? If that's not the truth, then don't, don't write that down, okay? So that's the Michael Rakes But that's how I picture it. And all these people like lying in the streets, in front of the streets, and Jesus is like, in a progression, making his way down the streets. And people are excited. They're singing. They're dancing around. They're waving palm branches, which is in John. He's, John's the only one that tells us anything about palm branches. None of the rest of the Gospels do in John chapter 12. And so, and man, there's this celebration, the praise of the people. And then in verse 37, he tells you the first purpose, the first reason why this crowd has gathered. In verse 37, is this one line there at the end. He says, for all the miracles that they had seen. That's the first reason the people are gathered for praise. I want you to think for just a minute. For some of you are familiar with this story. I want you to think for just a minute. Who would have been in that crowd? You see, Bethany is just about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Bethany is the hometown of this man named Lazarus. And some of you are familiar with the story of Lazarus. Some of you may not be. Lazarus was dead. Right? He was as dead as dead can begin. Right? He laid in a grave for four days and people were crying and people were weeping because there was no hope for Lazarus. And then Jesus shows up and he says, Lazarus, it's not time yet. Come on out of there. And Lazarus came out of a grave. Guess who's probably in that crowd? Probably Lazarus. Probably Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are in that crowd. Probably the people who are mourning the, the death of Lazarus, they're probably in that crowd, sitting there watching Jesus do all this amazing stuff. There's probably a man in that crowd named Zacchaeus, and I don't know for sure, but some of you know Zacchaeus. He's the wee little man in the sycamore tree, and uh, people hated him. People couldn't stand him because he was a thief, and then one day he met Jesus, and everything in his life changed. My guess is there's a man named Zacchaeus in that crowd because of a miracle that Jesus did in his life. You see, there are people in that crowd who, who were part of a 5,000 group of men who were sitting on a hillside. And that's just me and probably 20,000, 15,000, 20,000 people sitting on a hillside. And they started to get a little hungry and God fed them. Jesus fed them with one boy's lunch. I imagine, I don't know if all of them were in the crowd, but I imagine a lot of them were in that crowd that day. There's this massive crowd. You see, there's people in that crowd who have never walked before in their life until Jesus stepped in their life. 
There were people in that crowd who had been blind from birth and all of a sudden they can see with their eyes because Jesus stepped in their life and they can see this moment for the first time in their life. They, they've been to Jerusalem. They've, they've lived in Jerusalem for their whole life and they've never seen until Jesus stepped in their life. There's people who were lame and couldn't walk until Jesus walked into their life. There were people who were blind and couldn't see until Jesus stepped in their life. There were people who were dead and came back to life because Jesus stepped in their life. That's who's around them. And not just those people, the people they were connected with, they were indirectly affected by those miracles. Those are the people surrounding Jesus at this moment. You see, they're praising Jesus because of all the miracles that they had done. And can I share with you the reason that I get up here every Sunday morning and the reason that I hope all of us come to church every Sunday morning is to do the exact same thing. is to praise Jesus for the miracles He's done. And some of you are sitting here and you're like, I don't know, I've never been there. I've, I've always been able to walk. I've never been blind. But I want to tell you this. You've all been dead. And some of you may still be. I can't tell you that. Only God can, but I can tell you I was. And I can tell you that He brought a dead man in me back to life. And He made me who was blind spiritually come back and see for the first time. He made me who couldn't walk, couldn't do anything spiritually come back to, to Him. And so I tell you that I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And the greatest miracle that God ever did was when He sent His Son to the cross and made salvation for me. The greatest miracle is not making someone lame walk or someone blind see. It's taking someone who is dead in their trespasses and sin, an enemy of God, and making them a son of the Most High King. You see, we've got a reason to praise this morning. We've got a reason to be excited this morning. The death on the cross didn't stop God's miracles. It opened them up for everybody. And the greatest miracle is the fact that I can stand before you washed clean and made righteous. And you can have the same thing. And so we ought to be praising God all this morning and all of our life because the miracles He's done. In our life and in this church, you see, this book is full of the miracles that Jesus has done. But I should be looking at a room that's full of the miracles that Jesus has done. There is great praise that should be happening in your life because of the salvation, because of the miracles that Jesus has done. He's still in the miracle business. He's still making the lame walk. He's still cleaning the unclean. And He's still making the dead to live again. And we ought to be praising this Jesus that's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem because He's still doing miracles today. And if you don't believe it, I'm standing in front of you right now because of it. You're standing in praise because of it. You see, that's not the only reason to praise him. The second one comes in verse 38. and The verse 38 gives a ton of it. But verse 38 is actually a paraphrase of Psalm 118, verse 26. And it simply says this, The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. You see, the reason we praise him is not just because of what he's done. It's because of who he is. It is because He is the King. The word for King is that He is the Lord who comes. The Lord, He is Yahweh. He's the eternal God. The Lord, the King, the Commander, the Master, the Chief, the One in Charge. I like how this one puts it. That He is the One who is in control of all the goods and people within His domain. That is the King. There is no one who is not under His command. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says, The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. You see, what is the domain of God? Everything is the domain of God. You, me, and everything in it. Revelation chapter 7, verse 10, it says, And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, our King sits on the throne, and salvation belongs to Him. And so with this morning, we are sitting here this morning and, and we should be praising Him because He is the King, because He is the one who deserves praise, because He is the Savior who came. You see, this is where we lose a lot of people in this story. 
Because a lot of people love the idea of this humble Jesus riding in our donkey who's going to do something for them. But then we lose them as soon as we flip over to verse 38. A lot of people like this meek Jesus going to come in riding on a donkey and, and he's going to die for them and be their Savior. And they're okay with that. But then you get to verse 38. And verse 38 doesn't leave Jesus as a meek person riding on a donkey. It leaves him as the God of all creation. It leaves him as the Lord and having complete dominion over everything, including you and every aspect of your life. Notice it doesn't say, blessed is the one who shows up when I need him to. It doesn't say, blessed is the one who shows up when I'm in really big trouble and I call out to him and then he's there. No, it says, blessed is the one who is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the blessed one. So I want you to understand the reason we lose folks in this passage is because we don't want to give Jesus the domain that he rightfully owns in our life. We're okay with him being a donkey and riding, or not being a donkey, riding a donkey and showing up on, yeah, we're not okay with him being a donkey. Sorry, that was bad. We're okay with him riding a donkey and showing up on a Sunday morning, but what about when he shows up on Monday morning in your job? What about when he shows up in your checkbook and, and you've got to make a decision on what you're going to do with your checkbook? What about when he shows up in the life of your kids? What about when he shows up in your future plans and says, no, that's not the plan anymore, this is the new plan? Is he still Lord and King in your life then? Guess what? It's still in his domain, and it still is his. And so what God is looking for is not just people who are excited that he came riding on a donkey. What God is looking for and the praise that he's looking for is the ones who recognize that he is the king of everything. The Lord of your checkbook, the Lord of your tongue, the Lord of your decisions, the Lord of your moral standards, the Lord of your friends, the Lord of your job, the Lord of your free time. It's not just when you want him to show up. It is him and him all the time. Have you given him that spot in your life this morning? Have you come to a place in your life where you said, He is king and I am not? He determines my steps and I do not. He determines my future and I do not. He determines everything that I've been given and everything I'm going to do with my life. Parents, let me give you a harder one. Have you given your kids to Him in that same position? God, here are my kids. And whatever you have for them, I'm going to be okay with it. That's a tough one. God, if you want them to go across the world to a place that's unsafe to share the gospel, I don't have to like it, but I'm going to do it because you are the king and you have dominion and you have authority. See, that's where we lose people in verse 38 because we like him when he shows up riding a donkey and he's meek and mild. We can control Jesus then. But when Jesus comes to his king, it's a different story. But have you given him that place in your life where he sits on the throne of your life completely in control of all the goods and all the choices that you make in your life? See, there's a third reason that people are praising Jesus in this passage, and it works for us as well. You see, in verse 38, it says, The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. This is a beautiful connection between Jesus coming, riding on a donkey, being the Lord and God of everything, and the one who brings peace to us. You see, there's this beautiful connection between what Luke writes here and what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13 and verse 14. In verse 13 he says, But now, Christ Jesus, you who were far away, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Verse 14. For he is our peace. He made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. 
You see, what he's talking about is those who were, were part of the Jewish culture and the, the Jewish custom. They were God's people. And he says, listen, when Christ came, you were an enemy to God, that you were fighting against God. But through the blood of the Messiah, there is now peace between you. You have been called in and grafted in to this group. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer this, this friction and this chaos. And you're no longer caught in hostile territory. What you can do is now you can look at God and say, that's my father. Instead of looking at God and saying, that's my judge. You see, all of us, when we were born, had to look at God and say, that's my judge. But when we became Christians, when we came and accepted the message of the Messiah and through the blood of Christ, we now get to look at Him and say, that's my Father. We don't have to look over our shoulders and be worried about Him shooting lightning bolts at us or whatever you picture God's judgment looking like. We don't have to look at God that way. There's not hostility between us and God anymore. Now there can be peace between us and peace between Him. And now Christ stands in the middle and there's not friction. There's not fighting between us and God. There is peace. And for some of us, this is the peace that we are longing for. And for some of you maybe sitting in this room, for some of you online, this is what you're missing in your life. You're walking around in life and you're trying to figure out why some people have it together and some people don't. Why some people's life fits and works together and some don't. And I'm not going to tell you that if you become a Christian today, all of your life is suddenly going to magically fall into place. That's not what I'm saying. What I am telling you is that there's going to be this peace. There's going to be this wholeness and completeness that you've never experienced at any other time in your life. You see, that only comes through the king who rides on a donkey all the way to the cross of Calvary and through the blood of the Messiah. That we become whole and complete because we weren't designed, we weren't created to have this friction between us and God. We were created to be in fellowship with Him. And we were created to be one of His children. And we decided that we wanted something else more than we wanted God. And so when we did that, we started fighting against God to go against whatever we wanted to. And we, we caused this friction. And when we accept Christ, He brings us back to where we were designed to be. He makes that last piece of the puzzle fit perfectly so that everything is beautiful and everything is perfect. And we should praise Him because of the peace that He brings to all of His creation. And there's one last reason to praise Him, and it's simply because we recognize His glory. At the very end of verse 38, one last time, let me focus on this last part. In verse 38, it says, The King who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Glory can be defined as the perfection of divinity, divine excellence. Totally different standard from anything else. Right? Complete perfection here. Right? I, I was a teacher for a while, maybe you know that. And when you guys, you younger guys, when you take a test, if you get a hundred on that test, it means that you made everything right. On that test. You got everything right on that test. That test does not indicate that you are perfect or that you are complete. All right? So let me explain to you this way. When I give a test at the beginning of the year, and we've covered chapter one, and I give this test, and my students make a hundred on that test, that means that they know chapter one. It doesn't mean they know chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 25, 26, 12. It doesn't mean they know math. It doesn't mean they know physics. It doesn't mean they know anything else except chapter one. You see, part of our problem in our society is that we got a hundred on one test and we think it applies to everything in this world. That we got a hundred in one area and we think suddenly we became the authority in everything. And we forget that we are not the ones that possess the glory, that He is the one that possesses the glory. You see, Jesus doesn't get a test, He doesn't just get a hundred on chapter one. He gets a hundred on chapter two, three, twelve, twenty-seven, thirty-five, physics, astronomy, everything. 
There's nothing that He doesn't know. Because He is complete, because He is divine, because of His glory and His excellence, there's a completely different standard for us than for everything else. And so we are conceived, or we're deluded into thinking that we know all that there is to know, but it's not. You see, the standard is different when you're talking about God's excellence, when God's glory. You see, in all of creation, it understands this. All of creation understands the divine excellence and divine glory that's out there. All of creation gets this. In fact, Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of His hands. It's a beautiful picture when you go out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of night, and you look up and there's just countless stars. Can I tell you some of the times I felt most closest to God is not standing right here. It is when I go out in the middle of nowhere. And just all of creation is showing me the glory and the excellence of God. And all of creation is showing me how great and how big and how magnificent this God that I thought was this big really, really is. See, all of creation gets this. In fact, all of creation calls out for this. In fact, this is the reason the story kind of takes a turn in verse 39. The Pharisees see all this praise and they get mad because they're used to the praise being for them or a certain way. And so they tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, you need to put a stop to this. You can't allow this to happen. And we read verse 19 of Psalms like we just did, or chapter 19, verse 9. And he says, listen, I I can't stop this. If I did stop this, all of creation would do exactly what these people are doing. In verse 40, he puts it this way. He says, But he answered, I tell you, that if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. You see, all of creation understands the glory of God. It's us who are fighting against Him. It's us who thought we understood what glory looked like until we realized the greatness of God. A.W. Tozer, the great theologian, puts it this way. He said, God wants worshipers before workers. And actually, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the lost art of worship. Every stone would praise Him if the need arose, and a thousand legions of angels would leap to do His will. You see, we praise God because He is glorious. We praise God because if we didn't, rocks would take our place. We praise God because all of creation, all of what He has made, recognizes the glory that is there. And so the rocks are smart enough to recognize the glory of God. Shouldn't we be smarter than a rock? Shouldn't we be ashamed when we've withheld the glory of God and the praise of God and all of creation is crying out in our place? We should be ashamed when we've let things that shouldn't know better than us know better than us. When we've let a rock or a donkey recognize our Savior, and yet we didn't do it ourselves. But I want you to miss the end of the story, because the end of the story is not this great parade. The end of the story is actually not the praise and the the wonder of these people. And this is a beautiful worship moment for sure, but that's not where the story ends. That's where we stop it a lot of times. In fact, a lot of times that's where preachers end the story, but that's not the end of the story. You see, when we read on to the last two verses, we find that there's this consequence for this incomplete praise of both the Pharisees and the people that are there. In verse 41, it says, As he approached and he saw the city, he wept over it. And when it talks about him weeping over it, it's not just talking about like he's, he's got a little tear. This is the word that's used for like he is... is in lament, like he is mourning, he is convulsing so much that he is uncontrollably sobbing at this moment. 
Now, that doesn't fit with our picture of Jesus coming to the city. I want you to th- picture this for just a moment. Jesus riding on his donkey. People are praising him. People are worshiping him. It should be this great, wonderful moment. And yet Christ is convulsing with tears. Why? All these people get it, right? All these people are excited. They see the Messiah coming, and yet he is crying. And he's crying because of what verse 42 says. He says, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. You see, he's weeping. He's crying because they're going to reject the praise that they're giving him. There's a consequence for their incomplete praise and his heart is broken. The word is that he's convulsing here. And these people that should have gotten it, the Pharisees that should have gotten it, man, they've missed it. The Pharisees that knew the scripture like the back of their hand should have seen 500 years ago these prophecies that were leading to this moment and they missed it. They missed it totally. In fact, Jesus knows beyond that because there's thousands and thousands of people gathered around to worship him in this moment. Do you realize this is the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry? At no other time from now until His return is this mass of people gathered to praise Him like this. He's got a week left on earth before He dies and He's buried and He's resurrected. He's got a week left. And this is the largest crowd of all the people. You see, from this moment on, people turn on Him. From this moment on, people turn their back to Him. And so He realizes that what is true in their praise and what is not true. The reason he's so heartbroken is because this massive group of thousands of people who are gathered to worship him, they're just giving him lip service because they're all going to turn their backs on him. This is the same crowd that within this week are going to scream to have him crucified. You see, there's a consequence for their incomplete praise. There's a consequence that's happening. And he says, if you only knew, if you only knew what it was that was going to bring you peace, It's not what you pictured in your mind. It's not me come riding on a donkey and then I'm going to go kick out the Romans. It's this donkey is going to lead me through the temple. And this temple is going to lead me to the cross. And if you knew that's where peace was, then you would picture this moment a whole lot different. In fact, you're going to miss the whole point of this moment because you were looking for something else versus a Savior that was coming. And so today, I'm afraid that Jesus is still weeping much for the same reason. Because He knows the conditions of our hearts this morning. He knows that there are some of us maybe sitting in this room, some of us that are watching online, that you should have been like the Pharisees. That we should have been first in line because we grew up in church. We've been in Sunday school. We've been in worship. We've been drugged to church our whole life. And, and we've grown up in church in our whole life. And we've heard these stories time after time after time again. We've stood up. We sang these worship songs time after time. And yet there's still something missing in our life. And I can't help but to think that the Jesus who came and rode the donkey and died on the cross isn't still weeping for us who should have known it and missed the whole point of the story. I can't help but to think that there's this Jesus who knows it all and sees it all and He's not still weeping because He knows the ones who should have got it, the ones who should have seen salvation coming, the ones who should be worshiping. They may be doing it on the outside, but on the inside, they're not. I wonder if he's still weeping today because he knows the time is short. And he knows that when a week ends for this time in this story, that so many people are going to walk out and they're not going to be any different than when they walked into this moment. And I wonder how many churches today Jesus is weeping over because he knows that so many people are going to walk in or watch in online 
And they're going to watch in and, and be excited and they're going to worship this morning and they're just going to walk out and nothing's going to be different in their life. That Monday rolls around and they're just going to go back to their life like nothing ever happened. You see, he weeps because he knows what's happening both in that moment and in the days ahead. And so I want to simply ask you this morning, which version or where do you find yourself in this story? Where do you find yourself in what Jesus is doing? Are you gathered with the crowd, praising and worshiping Him? Are you the reason that Jesus is weeping and crying? That's really the only two options there are. You're either part of the worship that is going on, and God knows it, and you know it because you are in tune with God, because of the relationship you have with Him, or yet you continually break His heart because you know it, but you're not going to follow through with it. You know it, and you should have been part of it, but you're not going to join in with it. Yeah, you may stand up, and you may sing, and you may put on a good show, but your heart is far from Him. And you're the reason that He weeps this morning. Not because He's mad at you, but because He knows what awaits you. And He knows the peace that He can bring you, and where this road is going to lead you. Let's pray together this morning.